Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me tonight is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Ho there! (laughs) It starts already. Yes, it does. Now, this episode came about a bit differently than most do, Patrick. Usually, we just chat about what we are interested in, whether it be a theater movie or something older, and we lay out our schedule in a way that we will enjoy. But every now and again, we get a welcome surprise wrinkle via our premium picks option. This is the way in which listeners can pick a film for us to cover, either by coming together as a group and purchasing a premium pick, or by individually purchasing a premium pick. If there is a movie that you're dying to hear us cover, you can learn more about premium picks and how to make that happen by visiting feelandfilm.com slash premium dash picks. So here we are about to discuss Joss Whedon's modern day adaptation of Shakespeare's romantic comedy, Much Ado About Nothing. Thanks to friend of the show and patron Renee Spencer. Thank you, Renee, for picking a movie that made me cry and stars Patrick's man crush, Clark Gregg. Heck yeah. No, really, we do appreciate you so much. Your active contributions in the Facebook discussion group and your financial support on Patreon and with this premium pick. And we hope that we do this one justice for you. Now, before we jump in, I'll give, I guess, the obligatory spoiler alert. This is material from the 1590s, so I feel like the statute of limitations on spoilers has run its course, but, you know, not everybody out there is a Shakespeare scholar and might not be familiar with this particular play, so you've been warned if you don't know or want to know about Much Ado About Nothing, now is the time to turn back. However, for those of you that are familiar or sticking around, we do want to go ahead and also offer up a quick little recap of the story for you, because it can be winding and branching, and there's a lot going on, and especially with the names and the language and such, it's hard to follow. So I'm going to give you the quick synopsis of the story, and then we'll get into this. The war is over. Don Pedro, Prince of Aragon, with his followers Benedict and Claudio, visit Leonardo, Duke of Messina, a.k.a. Los Angeles, father of Hero and uncle of Beatrice. Claudio falls in love with Hero, at first sight, as often happens in Shakespeare, and their marriage is agreed upon. Beatrice and Benedict despise love and engage in frequent comic banter throughout the story. The others plot to make them fall in love with each other by a trick in which Benedict will overhear his friends talking of Beatrice's supposed secret love for him, and vice versa. Meanwhile, Don John, the prince's misanthropic illegitimate brother, contrives a more malicious plot with the assistance of his follower, Boratio. Claudio is led to believe that he has witnessed Hero in a compromising situation on the night before her wedding day, when in fact it is her maid Margaret with Boratio. Claudio denounces Hero during the message ceremony. She faints, and on the advice of the friar, who is convinced of her innocence, Leonardo, her father, announces that she is dead. Beatrice demands that Benedict should kill Claudio as a matter of revenge. Enter the foolish Constable Dogberry and his watchmen as they overhear Baraccio boasting of his exploit, and thus the plot is exposed. 
When confronted, Claudio promises to make amends to Leonardo. He is required to marry a cousin of Hero's in her place. When unmasked, though, she is revealed to be Hero herself, who is, of course, still alive. Beatrice then also agrees to marry Benedict, and a happy ending is achieved. Ha! <sighs> and that's the story, Patrick. That's the story. So, for you Shakespeare scholars out there, um, it's a lot to follow, and I hope that this will help you, those of you who are not, be ready for this conversation. And with that, Patrick, let's go ahead and just jump in there and start with our one-word takeaways. Go for it. Yeah, so I had a hard time picking a picking a word uh, because it seemed like it would change depending on what was going on. Uh, my first word was drunk because it seemed like there was so much drinking going on at every hour during the course of the story. And then I got to thinking about the story as a whole felt like one giant hookup. So hookup was my second second word. But I really settled on what I think the the crux of the story is and probably what my favorite part of the story is and that's the manipulation that takes place now that sounds bad because it sounds like i'm supporting manipulation but when it comes to shakespeare's plays particularly his comedies mischief and manipulation are really at the core of it uh, a midsummer night's dream comes to mind with puck and this is no different I think that Shakespeare has a way of using what we would probably consider basic manipulative tactics to help push his story along. I was surprised at how much I laughed out loud at certain parts as I was discovering what was going on. And I appreciate you giving the synopsis because I really had to read the synopsis myself before watching it. And getting a chance to have that in my head, it helped me pick up on the jokes or the banter or the things that were meant to be funny without stumbling over this Elizabethan language that is not common today. And I think manipulation really, really plays a significant part of the story, not only in its progression, but also in my enjoyment of it. Yeah, that's a perfect word for the crux of the main relationships that are taking place here and what goes down in a couple different key points in the story. So I think it's great. I remember when you texted me and said, everybody's drunk. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that is not going to be your one word takeaway. Of course they're drunk. They're at a freaking party like 24 seven for a week and a half or something. It's a frat house. It's that's what it is. It's a frat house for debutantes. Yeah. Yes, it really is. I want to go there. Anyway, my one word takeaway (laughs) was delightful. Early in the story, Leonardo describes the relationship between Beatrice and Benedict as a sort of, he says, merry war, a skirmish of wit. Well, that skirmish of wit can describe pretty much this entire screenplay, and it's a really jolly thing to observe play out. The two central romances in this story are each incredibly sweet to me in their own ways, One presenting the kind of relationship that I would consider something of the perfect sort for me. (laughs) Um, The intertwining nature of them throughout, combined with the brilliant fun of the script, makes this the kind of play that speaks to me. I love the use of black and white here and a lot of Joss's shot composing. I love the chemistry that much of the cast has with each other. I love Whedon's passion for this. I think it shines through in how he adapts this modern retelling Uh, with simplicity really being a key factor to its success. 
And I just get swept away watching it, and it makes me want to push play again as soon as it's over, which is a very rare thing for me. And speaking of delightful, Amy Acker is just a dream and incredibly talented actress. But maybe it's just the idea of a Beatrice existing for me that I'm smitten with, or both. It could be both. I'll I'll say it's both for you. (laughs) Well, I'm going to start with a little background on how this got made and some trivia about it, if you don't mind, because it's a pretty cool story. So, Much Ado About Nothing famously was shot in only 12 days, um, on location, at Joss Whedon, the director's Santa Monica home, in the middle of him making The Avengers. I believe it was actually post-production time. Um, they had just finished shooting, and they were about to spend however, goodness gracious knows how long, getting that movie ready. And he had actually made this written into his contract, that he would have this gap in order to make this um, it was a time when people really started to notice just how much of a workaholic Joss Whedon was, that he has a or an inability to slow down and stop. He just has to always be creating and doing something. But yeah, he invited a bunch of his old friends and people that he'd worked with over to his house, and it essentially was the culmination of previous engagements where they had been together and they had done some Shakespeare reading at his dinner parties. I mean, again, I want to go to these parties, Patrick, big time. This sounds amazing to me. There were minimal rehearsals because of the tight timeline, and many of the shots are actually done in one take due to the tight schedule, which for me just really... It makes me respect the acting even more so because I think it's fantastic throughout. The masquerade party uh, is one scene specifically. That was an actual party thrown by Joss Whedon and his wife. Um, All the extras were friends of the family um, or film students. And real alcohol was provided for the guests. So to your point about being drunk, only the principal actors abstained. They drank colored water instead. So no juice for them. Um, one cool thing, Joss Whedon offered Sean Mayer the role of Don John after learning that uh, Mayer had never played a villain before. And for those that aren't familiar, Sean Mayer is uh, Simon in the Firefly series. The commentary for this movie, I actually went to see if I could find a copy of the Blu-ray disc because I wanted to buy it and watch the commentaries today before we recorded. I didn't get a chance to, unfortunately. It was nowhere locally to be found. Um, but it set a Guinness World Record for the most people involved in a commentary. It included almost the entire cast. So I'm actually pretty stoked. I want to hear good, that. Good grief. It's got to be mean, chaos. I mean, you, it, it's got to be tra- How do you manage that traffic? I, I have no idea. That's why I've got it. I, it's like a train wreck. It's got to be. But it's going to be fun train wreck, I'm sure, because of who all is involved. So I've, just, I've yeah. got, got to listen to this um, commentary. There's actually sure. two commentaries on the Blu-ray disc for those that are interested. I'm sure one's a director. One is, yeah, one is more of him by himself, and one is everybody involved. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer alumnus Anthony Head was actually originally set to play the very key role of Leonardo. However, he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts, and Clark Gregg was brought in to replace him. Destiny. How about, yeah, how about that swing of events, man? I love it. Um, talk about working out well. Gregg is incredible. He is incredible. I, 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 gosh, I just, I've adored him since his work on the early 
Marvel films and then seeing him. He's the reason I started watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And if for no other reason than to find out, wait a minute, how did you resurrect yourself? And the way his he has that quietness about him, that kind of that kind of quiet humor where he doesn't have to be crazy obnoxious. And he he tends to play an authoritative figure in most things that I've seen him in. He was in an early episode of the West Wing, one of the first couple of seasons, and he played a Secret Service agent. And it was I mean, it was Coulson. It was an early version, early version of Coulson that we saw back in. It probably 19- was Coulson. I mean, the White House is in cahoots with the Avengers, of course. <laughs> this was him after. Yes, actually, I think he was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent because timeline wise, this was after he had gotten to become a, a seasoned partner with our friend Nick Fury. So he's a fantastic actor and I, I really do just enjoy everything that he's in. Yeah, me too. I, I've come to really love him as well. And I just, every time I see him, I like that we have actors that we gravitate towards and we know who those are. And so we always think about each other and our alternative fandoms for those actors. I mean, obviously there's a handful of them that we both dote on constantly, but it's cool to be like, oh, there's Clark Gregg. I know Patrick's going to be enjoying the heck out of this. Or, oh, I'm watching an Anna Kendrick movie. I know how Aaron's going to freak out when he sees this. Um, the last thing I want to note that is a cool little piece of trivia that people may not know is Joss Whedon did the music for this film. I had no idea that Joss Whedon had a musical background, but he wrote most of the lyrics, the score, all of it. Like, pretty incredible. Wouldn't Once, surprise me if he sung some of these songs, too, but I know that I, wasn't the case. You know, who knows? Maybe he did. He is a very <laughs> talented man. He is. He is indeed. Well, he chose the modern setting of Los Angeles, and... He also chose to film this in black and white. And I want to start by asking you, how did that affect your viewing experience? So as far as like the setting of this modern retelling, maybe as it compares to something like, say, a Romeo and Juliet, because it's very similar, like not in tone, but in location. Well, I think once you strip down everything that makes a Shakespearean play, a Shakespearean play to a 21st century audience, it really comes down to the words. This has always been the toughest thing about studying Shakespeare. And it's one of the things that I was reminded of when you were telling me, when when you mentioned that this thing was only shot in 12 days and that there were very few rehearsals. As an actor, I would imagine it's difficult to learn a bunch of lines for a movie when you elevate that to Elizabethan type language and create rhythm and create nuance in how you actually say these things, where it's not like you're just reciting poetic verbiage. I think what happens is, and what Joss did was to elevate that language even further by giving us familiarity in a modern day setting. I was not distracted by the costumes. I wasn't distracted by this modern day setting, I actually kind of embraced it because I wanted to get used to the fact that, okay, it's modern Los Angeles, but what sticks out now is the language. And that was what I focused on, not just because it was different, but because of the fact that it didn't fit in a normal setting. And part of me thought, how interesting would it be to modernize this even further and create an essentially even more modern day setting, modern day version of much ado about nothing. 
but then you'd actually lose the essence of what makes Shakespeare great, which is the way he wrote. That's who he was. Shakespeare was a writer and he was a, he was a screenwriter, essentially what it was. He wrote screenplays and he understood how to manipulate words and how to have conversations with his characters that was both entertaining, poetic, and meaningful. And I think when you strip out everything else that makes a Shakespearean play just that, and you're left with just the words, it really elevates the importance as well as the value and the enjoyment of that language. Again, I like the fact that we had that synopsis prior to that because I could focus on these little bits of dialogue that I can't remember a bit of because it's, again, it's Shakespearean language. But I remember responding to certain conversations and certain sets of lines that I, it surprised me because I was like, oh, that's really funny. Or, wow, I can't believe she said that. And so I like that. I guess the short answer is I really enjoyed the choice that he made, not only to set it in modern day L.A., but to film it in black and white. Because, again, if you did it in color, I think you'd focus more on the setting than you would on the word. So by making it black and white, all that stuff got stripped away and we got to focus strictly on what was being said and the actors that portrayed that verbiage. Yeah. So I think that goes back to what I said in my one more takeaway about simplicity. It's stripped down, like you said, to the point where we can focus in on the language. And in this case, the acting, because we need that in this movie more than ever to understand what is happening in modern day, you know, our translatable nature for this, this, these words that we don't completely understand these phrases. Right. And when you watch these guys act, it's the nuances between the lines that elevate what's going on. Like Clark Gregg's character, uh, Leonardo, there are things that he does with his face and there are things that he does like he makes these, sometimes he makes these like weird noises with his, his mouth or just a facial expression here and there that reacts to something that let's say Beatrice is saying. You don't get that when you actually just read the play. There's no stage direction that says Leonardo will make a face. This is Clark Gregg interpreting Leonardo's character and reacting and responding accordingly. And that's where I think the acting combined with the writing really makes this thing work. Yeah, I completely agree. I I love the setting. I love that it's shot in mostly natural light. I think it brings a lot of warmth to the story, works well with the black and white. There are so many just frameable moments in this movie for me, like scenes that I could just snapshot in high def and put on my computer background the whole masquerade party sticks out, it, you know, it's just so opulent. There's this backyard of a house, and there's trapeze artists, and this gorgeous pool, and Christmas lights around the trees. There's this moment when the wedding is about to happen. Well, I'm sorry, after the wedding has happened, um, and Hero has faked her death, and Claudio is taking this candlelight vigil down to, I guess, what is supposed to be her grave in her honor. It's a beautiful song that is playing over that that is, um, it's called Heavily, and it features Jed Whedon, indeed, but it is like a modernized musical cue for that beautiful scene. It's not something you would see in an adaptation of this in, like, play form in modern, or not modern times, um, in 
medieval times or Shakespearean, you know, time frame, you know, 16th century. So I completely agree. I love the setting. I was immediately comfortable with the film because of that, even when I didn't understand the language like you. I think that the first 15 to 20 minutes is really tough. That's why I texted you and said, read the synopsis first, because I wish I had. I actually paused a little ways in and was like, I'm going to read this and remind myself. Because I've seen it before. I've seen an adaptation, but I didn't remember. But, you know, at 15, 20 minutes in, you're trying to get to know all of these characters. There's all of this introduction going on. Not of it makes perfect sense at the time. And you're adjusting to that language. And you almost have to mentally just make the decision that you're getting enough and roll with it. And one thing I love is what you pointed out, what we were talking about here is that the mannerisms and the delivery of their lines make it so that you can follow along with the story and get the gist of what their intent is, even if you have no clue what is coming out of their mouth and you get lost in the dialogue. So here's something interesting I'd love to do is to watch this again on mute and see how the nonverbal cues work. Understanding the synopsis of the story and seeing if the acting itself, apart from the dialogue, apart from the the actual script, would give me a complete picture. I kind of feel like it would because I'm I'm looking at at Dogberry, Nathan Fillion's character, and the way in which he reacts to his deputies, the way in which like I was even watching specifically the way in which he grabs his cup of coffee from the from the coffee pot, he pours it, and then he does something to stop, and then he puts the coffee back there. I'm just I'm watching these nonverbal things happen and how they enhance what's going on. And it got me curious thinking, I wonder if I didn't un- hear the dialogue, much less understand it, would the story still make sense? And if it did, which I feel confident that it would, that speaks to the talent that Joss brought together with this cast of people. The last, I first of all, I've never seen this version of it before, so I'll confess that straight up. The last time I watched an adaptation of this was the 1993 one with Denzel Ron? Washington. Oh. There's a Denzel Washington version. There is? There is. The it's most a, well-known one is a Kenneth Branagh one, of course. That may be the same one. I'm not I think sure. it has Keanu Reeves in it. Okay. And it might have, anyway. I don't know. We'll have to verify. Counter reasons in everything right now, so maybe he I'm really, just projecting. Yeah, sure. He's probably in this somewhere. Maybe In our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. But I think that I would have an issue with that version of it because everything else was trying to work together to tell that story. And I think that the simplicity that, that Whedon puts together is intentional and it's effective in a way that even if you took one element away – the other elements that are in place would still continue that narrative, which is great acting. It's great directing. It's it's all the talent that you see on screen and even off screen. 100% agree. So with that cast, I mean, it makes me want to go and rewatch everything that these people have been in. Like I immediately want to rewatch Firefly and I want to go watch Buffy through for the first time. Yes, I will fully admit I'm a bad nerd and have not fully watched Buffy. There's so many episodes, man. I want to, but like there's so many episodes. Ah, <sighs> so I, I apologize fans out there of Buffy and I know there are many and I know that you are very, very passionate, but it makes me want to watch all the stuff that these characters are in angel 
um, and, and all the other stuff that Joss has done. Alias, Amy Acker, I believe, was an alias. That that one I have watched all the way through and absolutely adore. So, other than Dogberry, who clearly I know for sure stood out to both of us because it's Nathan freaking Fillion, and when he's a bumbling police inspector saying things like. Though it be not written down, yet forget not that I am an ass. It is hard not to just be in love with everything that comes out of this man's mouth. I mean, ah, I just, I'm imagining right now, like, and he doesn't realize what he's saying in that moment. And he's like taking pride in it and not realizing that it's a complete put down. And it's just, he's so good. He's so good. I know you love Clark, Greg. Who else stood out to you? Well, the surprise for me was Alexis Denisov, who plays Benedict. And I think the only other place I've seen him in as the other from the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. But even then, I didn't really know that Wait, that was what? him. As yeah. He, he's in. He's huh? in the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy plays the other. The other. The other, I think. I must yeah. not be familiar with that. Why am I I'm blanking on who the other is? He, he was he, probably in makeup like half the cast was. He must have. Yeah, I do but, not recognize him from anything. In, in all honesty, that's the thing is I don't really recognize him from anything else either. And to get a performance from him that, I mean, Christian was looking at me going, why is this so funny? And I'm like, I don't know, but it is the way that he embraces that character of Benedict is so hysterical <laughs> and so honest. Oh. And the chemistry that he and Amy Acker have and that relationship between Beatrice and Benedict, I mean, they sell that relationship. And, and I know that's, that's, that's what the story is. Like it's know, gotta be yeah. sold. And you want to be, I mean, we want to be kind of the, the cheeky critics and we're like, you know, that's the main story, but let me tell you who's really good. no, to me, that was the story right there. Beatrice and Benedict, I think their relationship anchored the entire narrative because of the fact that the good first half of the, of the, of the play movie, whatever we're going to call it, was about them representing their angst towards one another and towards love, which made the manipulation that took place over the rest of the movie that much better. And then Benedict becomes sort of this almost like a jester of, of sorts because of the way in which he sees Beatrice and how that affects other people. Like at the wedding, his, again, his nonverbal cues were phenomenal. His little facial expressions towards the, the wedding party, towards Tom Pedro and, and Claudio, it, it just, I couldn't help but just continue to laugh at what he was doing. And I'm like, this is what Shakespeare is supposed to do for me in a comedy. I'm supposed to laugh at the people who are supposed to be funny. And I'm supposed to care about those who are being dramatic. And he did both. Yeah, he did. And and there's multiple types of comedy, right? There's the Dogberry comedy, which is very aloof and specifically goofy. It's our modern day slapstick. And then there's Benedict comedy which is built into the nature of his character and just the situations he gets himself into by trying to like the moment he's trying to impress her and he just <laughs> like this cannot possibly have come from actual shakespeare but he just stops in the middle of the yard and gets on the ground and starts doing push-ups 
and various exercises and you know, the way he's looking at her and talking I, I lose it like even just imagining it right now it's one of the funniest things i've seen all year i just could not contain myself and i was like thinking does that work like i you know if that works maybe i need to put some of these on instagram or something i don't know what i'm doing wrong maybe that's it maybe i'm not doing push-ups in the yard for the woman that i am trying to woo i, th- I think what makes it work is that you've got a an actor like denisov who is very charismatic very strong very just just very good looking and from the very beginning that that scene in the bedroom where he's he's giving claudio a hard time about loving loving hero you couple that with the what i call the the workout scene what you're referring to he becomes incredibly childish which really sells what shakespeare is saying in terms of what love does to a person specifically a man, but you've got this charismatic, wouldn't ever expect this kind of reaction from this person, giving us a sense of saying, look how amazing I am. I'm trying to impress you with everything I've got to a point where I'm going to be doing uh, yoga poses for you. It sells how he's falling as well into this, uh, you know, fascination with her and into this, you know, uh, uh, this he's just starting, he wants to impress her. And he can't really control himself. So I, I love that relationship. I mentioned earlier, Amy Acker, I just found her to be dreamy in this. I was not super familiar with her before. She's amazing. I mean, not just beautiful-wise, which she is, but she, like you said with Denisov, she is so strong when she needs to be in her dramatic moments. I mean, this is a movie that definitely features a lot of female empowerment uh, from her perspective and her mannerisms. The way in which she delivers some of these lines is just like zing constantly. Uh, I love it. It is on fire. And when the two of them need to show that chemistry, it is a hundred percent believable. Like there is no doubt, no question in my mind about how they feel about each other. And I like that because Shakespeare does do some of these, you know, the Claudio and Hero story is a fall in love at first sight. It's classic Shakespeare. Some of that is, I think, to rush and get to the point so we can enjoy these relationships and these situations that these characters get placed in. Um, obviously, I don't think he believes that everything is love at first sight. It just gets us there quicker. And so it's fun to watch that play out. So I think the thing about this particular iteration of Much Ado About Nothing and the stripped down modern day setting, it allows me personally as a director in training the opportunity to see a classic storyteller do his thing because there's not a lot about this story that's compelling like there's no crazy twists everything feels like what you mentioned it's a means to an end shakespeare may not believe in love at first sight but it's a great little trope and it leads to the conflict which eventually leads to the resolution. And you have that in combination with Beatrice and Benedict's relationship as an overarching narrative that is indirectly affected by, but not necessarily completely tied into that one. And I think this is a great visual exercise in understanding how to craft a narrative, a basic narrative. 
And Shakespeare was great at it. I want to see more of these modern adaptations so that I can see those things more obviously. And I don't know if Joss Whedon was going for that, or maybe it was just a product of him being a director that this is just kind of a byproduct of that. But I really appreciated that because it called those things out more so than if these guys were wearing traditional Elizabethan garbs and you had really stiff performances as opposed to modern performances. I wouldn't have been attracted to Benedict and Beatrice's relationship, I think, if this was a traditional role. Not at all. Not at all. I would not have been attracted to it at all either. And I think you called this out in the beginning and you are spot on. Costuming is a huge part of that. What do we talk about when we talk about period pieces? We talk about the sets, the production value, and the costuming. Those are the things that our attention is drawn to. And it's inevitable. So here, it's taking that out of the equation, like you said. It lets us focus on the story, focus on the acting, focus on the actual you know, language itself. The other actors I just wanted to touch on, Claudio is played by Fran Kranz, or Kranz is his name. I think this is the only time I've ever seen him other than as Marty in The Cabin in the Woods. I was shocked when he showed up on screen because I was like, wait a second, I know that guy from somewhere, and he looks and acts nothing like the character that I'm thinking of. And so I had to, you know, Google him, of course. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Marty, the stoner. Um, so I loved, like, seeing the variance in range of the two characters. that are They're, like, nothing alike, man. So completely different. Ashley Johnson is in this. Um, she plays Margaret, the handmaid, much, much more known for her voice acting. She actually plays Ellie in The Last of Us. Don John, Sean Mayer, we mentioned earlier, Simon from Firefly. So I, I really enjoyed just walking through revisiting these characters and these actors and seeing them come together thinking about like oh it's this guy from firefly and this person from angel and i would have never noticed that crossover before but here i'm getting it in a shakespeare kind of world well being this is a romantic comedy and not a romantic tragedy it is much different than something like romeo and juliet when it comes to the dramatic moments you and i both obviously laughed throughout this one frequently. But there are definitely some of those dramatic moments that forward the plot and raise the stakes. Do you think that they were balanced well, the comedy and the drama? Do you think that they even need to be? And specifically, I think marriage is the big driving force here. And I I wondered how you felt about the different approaches to marriage that we see presented via comedy and drama, both, in Beatrice, Benedict, and Claudio Hero? Well, when I think about Shakespearean plays, it's either a tragedy or a comedy. And the thing that characterizes those specifically is either people get married at the end in a comedy or or people die. And you know that going in, so it wasn't unexpected. And while I didn't really attach myself to the resolution of, oh man, I'm glad these guys got together. I was really afraid that they wouldn't. Knowing that they would, even if I hadn't seen or read the play, I would know historically that there will there would be happy endings. When it comes to Shakespearean plays, because you know that, because you know the formula, you really want to pay more attention to and enjoy the journey to get there as opposed to the destination. And so for me, 
I thought it was really well balanced. I thought it was appropriate comedy when comedy needed to be done. And it was appropriate drama when drama needed to be uh, articulated. There's a great moment, I believe, after Beatrice and Benedict share their love for one another. And it's after the marriage scene where where Hero gets basically spat on and insulted. And they're sitting in that little, not breakfast nook, but in that windowsill. And Benedict says, I will do, essentially, I'll do anything for you. What can I do for you? And Beatrice says, take out Claudio or, you know, kill him. And he's like, wait, essentially, I can't do that. And she's like, then you don't love me. And we've, we've heard that before. Yeah. In real life. <laughs> in, exactly. You know, if you love me, you'll blah, 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 blah. Uh, we see it in, in biblical stories too. John the Baptist got his head cut off because of that. But so it's not necessarily new information or a wow, I didn't expect that, but it's the way it was packaged. And in that moment, I felt like that was a believable moment. I was I was connected to that and I believed Beatrice's angst when she felt that way. And I believed Benedict's conflict when he felt that way. And eventually his decision to say, okay, I'll do it. So I didn't mind the kind of predictability of everything. I liked the way it was all packaged and it made the experience of the movie a lot better because I enjoyed the journey as much as the destination. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with all of that. I really kind of fell in love with Shakespearean comedies, I think, through the experience of watching this. It made me want to see more of them out. Of course, I wish that I could seek them all out remade by Joss in this style, because that would be amazing, and I can't. But I just enjoyed the moments of comic banter they worked for me. The romantic pronunciation, those worked for me better than the dramatic ones. Now, there are a couple of hard-hitting dramatic scenes, the big daddies, I would say, that worked out just fine and were great. But there is a little bit of stuff in there with Don John. I mean, he's not in it a lot, but there's a couple moments where he's in it and some kind of background moments and setup that happens that is a little more in the dramatic side and that I was just like more likely to kind of check out. I guess I would say those less funny scenes or less romantic scenes were harder to follow without knowing the plot or understanding the language than the, than the comedy, because it's easier to articulate the comedy and the romance in your mannerisms and your acting. Right. Like there's a great scene where Beatrice is overhearing the conversation with, um, see, this is where I'm going to mess up the, the names with, with, uh, with hero and, Maybe it's Conrad. I don't remember, but they're plotting just like Leonardo and, and those guys are for Benedict. She hears that Benedict is in love with her and she falls down the stairs. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. I really laugh at physical comedy, but to see someone as elegant and as suave as Amy Acker fall down the stairs. I love that irony. I love the fact that we have someone who is so confident in who she is at the very mention that someone has feelings for her. She completely turns into, you know, a swooning person. I don't want to say girl because that's not cool, but to see her fall down the stairs was perfect. Right. Yeah. Because 
it was only it was such a surprise for her. But at the same time, it was like, oh, well, I, I need to I need to know more. Yeah, and, and I love I, when I thought, she runs and like slides into the little nook underneath yeah. the ca- underneath the uh, counter when right. she's trying to overhear what's going on as well. She does some great stuff like that throughout. But yeah, I like the comedy. I like the romance. Um, many of the lines here stuck out to me. Claudio is talking about hero's love at one point. He says, silence is the perfectest herald of joy. I were but little happy if I could say how much. Lady, you are mine. I am yours. I give away myself for you and dote upon the exchange. And I'm just like, I swoon at that flowery wording. Um, I did wonder why this movie is so anti-beard. That pretty much frustrated me early on. The one problem I have with Beatrice, and it's sort of unforgivable, honestly. She says, Lord, I could not endure a husband with a beard on his face. I had rather lie in woolen. And I was like, jaw drop. Come on, woman. Come on. Are you kidding me? And then later, what even makes me more angry, Patrick, is that Benedict shaves his beard for her as a way of showing her and professing his love. And I was like, no, just no, dude, be yourself. And she needs to accept you for your facial hair and all. But that is part of why I just love everything about this whole romantic plots that are taking place i I really related to benedict's desire for the perfect woman early on you know beatrice doesn't want love because she has seen too many women like hero who get married and it stifles their independence because marriage is what you're supposed to do and she could marry if she wanted to don pedro proposes to her at one point but the entire institution of marriage seems contrary to her ideals. And like Hero is a great comparison to her because for Hero, she is the kind of woman who she seems to desire marriage above all. Like she would have married Don Pedro instantly, but then she also quickly accepts Claudio's proposal. Like she doesn't really care. She just wants to be married. Like the act is more important than the person. Beatrice is almost anti the act and then benedict is not seemingly anti-marriage but he is a lot like i am at this point in my life and that is he is searching that quote-unquote perfect woman and i find this kind of ironic because i happen to talk to renee a lot um who purchased this premium pick um offline of offline uh in real life i don't know how to word this like we're friends and i often will joke with her and say add such and such quality to my list. And she's keeping this list of the perfect woman for me. And she keeps telling me how this person doesn't exist. And so, of course, I had to say, you know, add Beatrice to my list um, as part of this. And we actually get a scene that is this in Must Do It Out Nothing. Benedict says this, and I'm going to read it off because I'm sorry, I just love this language. And so I like to quote as much of it as I can. He says, one woman is fair, yet I am well. Another is wise, yet I am well. Another virtuous, yet I am well. But till all graces be in one woman, one woman shall not come in my grace. Rich she shall be, that's certain. Wise, or I'll none. Virtuous, or I'll never cheapen her. Fair, or I'll never look on her. Mild, or come not near me. Noble, or not I for an angel. Of good discourse, an excellent musician, and her hair shall be of what color it please God. 
Ha, the prince and Monsieur love. I will hide me in the arbor. Now, Benedict is essentially listing off his list, his version of my qualities of an ideal woman. And he says that he can't be tempted to love any woman unless she has all of these qualities wrapped up into one. And so she is an idealized and 100% completely unrealistic version of a woman. And I love it because it's relatable and it also gives his character this incredible depth because it makes you immediately understand how highly he thinks of himself to believe that he deserves such a woman. And it's great because he gets that redemptive ending of ultimately deciding and growing up and marrying Beatrice despite her not being his quote perfect woman because she in reality she is his perfect woman right and I think this is where Shakespeare shines the most is that he provides commentary about possibly his own life not necessarily the women he would want to be married to but the qualities that he sees women portraying because to Benedict he says all of these qualities and my woman needs to have all of them, but none of those qualities are necessarily shallow. They all have value and it would be easy for comedic purposes or for just whatever for him to just spout off beauty and kind and a great servant and, you know, to, to keep it modern, someone who gets my shoes and someone who cooks for me. All those things that he mentioned, you're right. He feels like he deserves those things. But at the same time, it's almost like a weird compliment he's giving to ultimately Beatrice, but to the ideal woman saying, the woman I marry needs to have depth, needs to have significance, not just to me, but to the world. And that's what I picked up from that set of lines is that he wasn't just saying, look what I need, look what I need, look what I deserve. but Look what's out there. Women are out there that exist that challenge me. Women are out there that exist that can can go toe-to-toe with me. And I love that Amy Acker portrays that character to him and that tension that exists all the way through the story and eventually resolves itself. That's what I love about the journey is I knew they were going to get together. Whether or not I'd read the play – it was going to happen because it's set up like an episode of Melrose Place where, you know, in the end, you're either going to have people breaking up or getting together. And then you add Shakespeare in there. It's more likely going to be them getting together. But the fact that we see this poetic way in which he describes her without talking about her. it Yeah, it makes her feel more expensive as a woman in that. I, I know that's not the best way to describe, but she she's more complex that way. She has a lot more value than just what she can do for him. Yeah. It gives her that that value that I think is complimentary to her. Yeah, same. That's exactly why I have the list. That's same, of course. <laughs> Duh. You got it. I'm glad you figured that out. So, so I'm here for everybody out there listening. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, so how does this story depict the role of men and women for you? Gender seems to be a big focal point and – does it do anything that you would consider taboo for Shakespeare in the late 1500s? And also, if it does, how does that translate now in this modern day setting? My ignorance is going to shine right now because I, I don't know 
how Shakespeare saw women in his day. But I feel like this is very weird to have someone like Beatrice in his play. Now, having not read other of his other having not read his other plays in a long time, I can't be sure if there were other strong female leads and if this was consistent or if Beatrice was an exception to the rule where Hero was the more common type of character. Nonetheless, I think that it's a very refreshing thing to see someone like Beatrice in a story like this that challenges a man. Because at the very least, what Shakespeare's doing is he is challenging male and female, traditional male and female roles. He's saying, here's what things look like, but here's what they can be. Because the roles of men and women, while properly defined, may not necessarily be limited to just those things. That women can speak up when they need to, and they can defend, and men can soften themselves for the sake of someone else, whether it's for a woman or a friendship here and there. Like, for instance, I love Don Pedro and Claudio's relationship. I think it's a fantastic companionship relationship, a lot like David and Jonathan in scripture, where you have two men that would fight for each other and that defend one another. Like the, as wrong as it was and as deceived as they were, I love that Don Pedro stood right by Claudio's side at that wedding and did not say a word and let Cla- uh, Claudio do what he did because he believed in that. He yeah. believed in, in Claudio. And I think that Shakespeare has this ability to level the playing field in a way that's both entertaining and educational. And whether or not he has some kind of agenda behind it, I think it's very effective. I love that you pointed out that scene because I completely agree. And I think that's a great picture of showing strength in a man that is valuable. Like it comes, it, it's what makes that scene have the drama it does and effect it does on me is because I stand with Claudio based on what Claudio knows. Now, I mean, I wouldn't slap the woman around, but like the point of the fact that he's calling her out for being unfaithful and essentially not telling him the truth and he's brokenhearted over it right like i mean it there's nothing wrong with his reaction essentially be based on what he believes to be the truth and what he has been lied about and you're and it's so true like the the fact that he is stood behind by don pedro who he is you know a follower of is great support for someone who is essentially your boss in so many ways. And you're, it's cool because you're right. It is akin to almost like a friendship, um, in a sense, but it's also a supportive boss who is going to stand up for his employee because he knows his employee is virtuous and is good. Likewise, on the other side, the friar and Leonardo and Beatrice are standing up for hero because they believe in her virtue and they're both right in this situation. This makes it great and dramatic. I love it because she is so upset about her cousin's shaming. In this society, what I do know is that if Hero really did what she did, then her reputation is ruined and she is essentially as good as quote unquote dead, which is why we get this 
drama added to it. And Beatrice lamenting that she's a woman and doesn't have the power to get revenge herself is really moving. And so, like you said, using her feminine power to enlist Benedict to kill Claudio for her instead is what she would have had to do. And it comes out in this amazing, I almost wish I could have pulled the audio for this, but like, it's just one of the iconic, I feel like, moments of dialogue where she says, oh God, that I were a man. And she says, princes and counties, surely a princely testimony, a goodly count, count confect, a sweet gallant, surely, oh, that I were a man for his sake, or that I had any friend would be a man for my sake. But manhood is melted into curtsies, valor into compliment, and men are only turned into tongue and trim ones too. He is now as valiant as Hercules that only tells a lie and swears it. I cannot be a man with wishing, therefore I will die a woman with grieving. I, I mean, like, you can feel the feminist nature of her character, and it translates, I think, so well to modern day what many women go through, even and, now. Absolutely. And I think what I pull from that in light of her overall character arc is that in moments where being a man would be advantageous, ultimately she isn't content or satisfied. She is proud to be a woman because of the influence that she can have on somebody like Benedict. I don't know that if this were a man or if this were a connection that he had with a friend, if she would be able to influence him to go after Claudio and maybe Shakespeare is kind of subtly calling out the fact that women can use their femininity to manipulate men. I don't know if that's for sure, but if it is, I think that is effective. If I'm wrong, then I will probably be called out for that. But the fact is, I think that Beatrice as a character is, she understands the value of being a woman, but she also understands the limitations of not being a man, particularly in these moments where things seem to come easier when you are a man, that you can make decisions quicker and you can have more influence and it takes a lot more work. But in the end, I think she's proud of who she is and she even though she recognizes those limitations. And I think that's a really healthy kind of way of thinking about yourself in knowing that Yes, it would be easy for me to be this, but this is who I was made to be. And I'm going to fully embrace that and use it to my advantage. And she does. Yes, she does. And I feel, again, very relatable. Like, I am that guy who would succumb to these types of manipulations, going back to the manipulation theme. Like, that's what it is. It's what she has to do in this era in order to get what she wants, but it is manipulation in the same sense that they've been manipulated to believe these things about Hero. Right. And I think um, if I think if Hero had been in that situation, I don't know that Benedict would have been attracted to that because I think he was attracted to Beatrice's strength, and therefore that's how she had that ability to manipulate him. If it was somebody like Hero trying to convince Benedict to go after Claudio because of 
something happening with Beatrice, I don't know that she would have been nearly as effective because I think he respects the strength that Beatrice has enough to say, you're worth it. And ultimately, it doesn't happen. And I think, in a way, I think maybe they both know that it's not going to happen. That the idea of him getting to a place where he can admit and say that he would do a thing is good enough, if that makes sense. Does that, does that, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know that it ever feels like this was going to be something followed through upon as much as it was she needed to believe that he quote unquote would. Yeah. I think that this is a gap in, in the writing that I had issues with because there were some, some leading plot lines that didn't really pay themselves off. And when you make a decision like that, and I don't know that I did or didn't think it was going to happen. I wasn't surprised that it didn't because we only had about 10 minutes left in the story and that would have complicated things and we need to get to a marriage. But at the same time, there wasn't enough there to make me think that it wasn't going to happen either. It, it was weird. It's along the lines of Don John too. Krisha leaned over and she said, what's his problem? Why is he doing that? And I thought, did I miss something? Did I miss some important dialogue of what his motive was? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but I kind of had to piece together that I think he's kind of the bastard child and he's just jealous. And if that was all the information we got, I don't know that that was very strong. And so I think the same thing, this little small subplot, while I get why it was done to make a point in that one scene, it didn't seem to carry enough weight to say, oh, is it really going to happen? Man, I'm starting to fear for Claudio's life because this could really complicate things. I didn't think it was going to get that complicated. Well, literally, those are the like two things that are the only real negatives or you know, slight detractors to this movie for me. Um, there's the Don John thing as well. Like he hardly shows up at all in the film and he's supposed to be this big, scary bad, I guess, but it doesn't really translate well in Joss's version. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of okay with that, but at the same time, it doesn't allow us to have the same impact when he's arrested at the end. It's like, okay, well, whatever. Like, you know, who caused all of this villainy isn't really of matter to the story that Joss is telling us. Right. Well, Benedict has a great line at the end of the film that stuck out to me in a big way, and I just wanted to see what you thought about it. He says, For man is a giddy thing, and this is my conclusion. I wondered if you had any thoughts on what you thought that might mean as far as what does it mean to say that man is a giddy thing? I translated that to be mankind, not just a man or the male. I think that in part it was Shakespeare's way of saying people watching can be probably the most entertaining thing you can do because they are so both predictable and unpredictable. I think that Shakespeare was making a commentary about life and living and how life can be a comedy when you look at it that way. It can also be a tragedy. And in this way, I think it leaves us with a positive note by saying, look, life can be enjoyed and you should be able to laugh at yourself. You should be able to laugh at your circumstances at the very least after the fact, as difficult or as complicated as they seem at the time. At some point, you should be able to look back and go, wow, that was crazy. 
but I can laugh about it because in retrospect, it wasn't a big deal. And I think that this whole situation, this whole drama that played out, this whole soap opera, if you call it, is just that. It's Shakespeare's way of saying, let's have some fun with these characters. And I think it comes out in his writing, where, which is why we don't have some of that, that Don John backstory. Uh, because I, I think Joss translated this word for word. I don't think he discluded anything. The abridged version, yeah, he did. I think there's like one or two sentences that he altered very slightly, but otherwise it was, you know, he was proud of the fact that it was a direct word for word adaptation. So if that's the case, what we have is Shakespeare playing with characters like a, like a toy, like a set of toys. He's, he's playing Barbie. He's playing GI Joe here. And he's asking the question, let's see what would happen if we put them in this situation. Let's see what would happen if they did this. And so when Benedict makes that line, when he says for man is a giddy thing, and this is my conclusion, I think it's almost Shakespeare's way of saying man is fun. He's fun to mess with. He's fun to watch. And at the end of the day, maybe he'll get married. (laughs) Well, I I think you nail it. I mean, I think that it's about the inconsistency of all mankind and our actions throughout our lives is what's being commented on, what we're seeing throughout the whole play. I think that it is playfully poking fun at the foolishness that is consistently happening throughout this because characters aren't taking the time to reflect and think through things. They're letting their emotions drive their actions and i think that they all ultimately are enlightened somehow they all kind of come to understand themselves and their fellow man better Um, they understand their potential areas that they could falter and that they may need to think about when they're making decisions and things and so i think that you're, you're right. Absolutely. Um, and it's a, a great kind of ending to the play. It's a great way to end it thinking, you know what? We are going to do foolish things. We're going to be silly. We're going to make mistakes. Um, but we can learn and we can be better and we can have a happy ending. Ultimately, um, it's okay. We, we do are capable of loving and becoming better and growing out our immaturity and our silliness. And so that's kind of how I took it too. And I just really love the way it's worded. It's just, that's one of those Shakespeare lines that I'm just like, Oh, it's so great. I mean, at the very least we can take the words of Dogberry and just admit that we are an ass. We are all an ass. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, let's go ahead and get the connecting points section done here. So I'm curious what yours was. I haven't, heard from you yet offline so this will be my first time finding out benedict's monologue leading up to and including the what i call the dupe where Leonardo is plotting with claudio about essentially letting benedict overhear what's going on there's there's a lot to love about this there's the the monologue leading up to it includes what you and i talked about earlier with him just sort of doing these exercises going up and down and kind of wrestling with should I, should I be in love with this woman? Should I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm these things, you know, and, and this is the type of woman that, that I need for myself. 
and he walks by the in the courtyard and he overhears Leonardo and Claudio talking and they are of course wrecking they know he's there watching him react and dive back and forth out of out of sight and seeing his reaction i think really plays up to what shakespeare would say love does to a person it just makes them an idiot ridiculous yes <laughs> And the thing is that this was me in junior high and high school where I thought I was a Benedict. Let's just get that out of the way. I thought I was in my own head. But then when I crushed on some girl, I became that guy. A dogberry? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Essentially, I became became an ass essentially is what happened. In a big suit, by the way. Nathan Fillion was rocking this huge suit, it looked like. I don't know if it was because he was big or whatever, but he was... Yeah, he's a little little chunky in this one, but he's still, anyway, he still killed it. Um, so when I, when I watched this performance, first of all, I was laughing out loud the whole time. It it was one of the few scenes where I remember clearly, uh, being overly amused by it. But I I love the way that the charismatic got challenged by the weakness of thinking that someone might be in love with you, that, you're not actually capturing the damsel. The damsel is capturing you. And of course it began with that, with that conversation. And there was this great coupling with, with Beatrice and her reaction, which I thought was equally just as funny. So if I could maybe wrap both of those scenes up into one, that would be my connecting point because really that's what Shakespeare was great at in terms of his comedy. And I love the fact that we have two actors that know how to really embrace that. And it sold it for me. Can't argue with that. Not in the slightest, man. It's a great one. Well, mine is the end of the film. Um, and, and I just say the end because it's sort of con- inclusive of, of a lot of stuff. The recap is just, you know, we talked about it, but Leonardo tells Claudio that as punishment, he wants him to tell everybody in the city how innocent Hero was. And also to marry Leonardo's quote-unquote niece, he tells Claudio that the girl looks much like the dead hero, of course, to kind of throw him off his scent. Claudio goes to the church with others. He prepares to marry this mysterious masked woman that he thinks is Hero's cousin. Um, When Hero reveals herself as the masked woman, he is so overwhelmed with joy. And then... Benedict, I think, feeling that overwhelming sense of relief and joy, asks Beatrice if she will marry him. There is some more amazing banter and arguing, and then they agree. And the joyful lovers, both pairs, all have a merry dance before they celebrate their double wedding. Frankly, Patrick, I just love the end of the story so much because we almost get a tease like it's going to be a traditional Shakespearean tragedy with what is going on with Hero's fake death, and then, boom, it's just a happy ending. It's all smiles. I love Claudio accepting Leonardo's terms and the acting in that scene when he is going through the mental gymnastics of what it means to say yes, to clear her name. You can tell he cares, and he wants to do this justice by her, but he realizes also what it's going to mean for the rest of his life. He says, your over-kindness doth ring tears from me. I do embrace your offer and dispose 
for henceforth of poor Claudio. He's like, I'm going to die to myself because I'm going to do this thing that is bigger than me. And then the surprise um, on his face. And when he agrees to marry her before seeing her, her face and he is has her revealed to him. And I'm like, I'm in tears. I am in tears of joy in this moment. I cannot control it. And she says, and when I lived, I was your other wife. And when you loved, you were my other husband. Nothing certainer. One hero died defiled, but I do live. And surely as I live, I am a maid. Beautiful dialogue. Of course, Benedict um, proposes to Beatrice. And it's just phenomenal, man. Multiple marriages. The villain gets arrested. Um, all the characters have changed for the better. It leaves me dreaming that I could find my Beatrice, you know, and the hope of a world where people freely own up to their mistakes and take responsibility for them to right their wrongs and are rewarded for being pure of heart. Um, I think Joss really, really shines at making character-focused stuff like this, and I would love to see him do more of this and less blockbusters for a while. I would too. I really want this low-key, short-film, independent flavor from him because I think he's a fantastic director, big and small, but yeah, more of those would be much appreciated from me. Well, that wraps up this episode of Feelin' Film. Uh, be sure to stick with us as we continue our summer love conversation covering Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, a first-time watch for Aaron and a favorite of mine. All right, all right, all right. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.